Are you in need of a wedding photographer or videographer? Graduating and needing senior photos? Selling a home and needing real estate photography? Rebranding your business or church and needing a logo and or a promo video? Or anything else? Let me know. I have 10 years of experience with photo, video, and graphic design. Check out my website, www.shortpromedia.com. Right, welcome back everybody to the first episode of season two of the chat audio podcast where we talk about everything and anything this first episode we have robert fairman who is an epidemiologist and knows what he's talking about when it comes to um illnesses and viruses so robert welcome to the uh, episode yeah thank you so much for having me I'm, I'm stoked to be here and glad to be talking with you of course of course so uh, for those that may not be familiar with you, do you mind giving a little uh, background of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Robert Fairman. I'm a Second Century Initiative Fellow and Epidemiologist at Georgia State University in the School of Public Health. Um, and I uh, have a pretty a pretty robust background in public health. Um, I have a Master of Public Health from Emory University and a Bachelor of Science in Public Health from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Okay, okay. Um, I'm a Certified Health Education Specialist. Um, with experience on the state, uh, local, and federal levels, um, as well as consulting with hospitals during outbreaks. And uh, a little fun fact is this is actually coronavirus. is actually the third major outbreak that I worked on. The first one that I ever worked on was um, helping us prep for Ebola. Um, the mm-hmm. second one I worked on was Zika. Um, and then now um, I'm doing coronavirus response. Um, so I'm an epidemiologist. Um, by training. Um, Specifically, I look at social and behavioral factors of health um, and how those influence um, people's health decisions, as well as how those influence um, how illnesses are spread and transmitted. Um, And and that can be either in the community. I've worked um, on on the federal level um, and with hospital systems, looking at how diseases spread and move inside hospitals. Um, Or it could be something like um, regionally or um, just within um, a school or, or a daycare center or even a jail or a prison. Okay, nice. What made you choose, what, what made you want to be an epidemiologist? Yeah, so my mom actually hates this question because I give her the, this, this same answer. She's like, Robert, there's got to be something else. But really what it was is uh, in seventh grade, my social studies teacher showed us a documentary about Ebola. Um, and I think we actually read a book with it. And I immediately like, was enamored by it. I thought it was the absolute coolest thing ever. Um, Ebola is a, a really awesome disease, uh, which is weird to say, but it's it's one of my favorite diseases um, just because of what it does to the body. And sort of in seventh grade, we watched this documentary about like a super contagious, super deadly virus that like had been around since the 60s that still had a pretty high mortality. I mean, uh-huh. even in like 2005, 2006, Um, Your chance of living was like less than 5%. Um, And um, it was something that had been around for, at that point, about 45 years. And just nobody knew how to deal with it. And I thought, that's really cool. That's sort of what I wanted to do. Um, So growing up, like I was always like, you know what? Like I'll go into nursing. I'll do outbreak response to nursing. Or I'll be like an infectious disease nurse. Um, And then I got to college and nursing just wasn't quite the right fit for me. Um, I, I knew sort of that like even after... You know, if I stuck with nursing after nursing school, I would end up probably getting a master of public health and being a nurse epidemiologist anyway. Um, but for me, 
the the decision to to sort of forego nursing school and take a more um, public health centered and, and focus on my degrees in public health to become an epidemiologist sort of is just what made sense. Um, and it ultimately, I would say actually worked out a little bit better. Um, but it's something I'm one of the one of the few I would argue that sort of has always known that public health is where I wanted to be. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy that sort of that that it's where I've ended up. Very nice. So you said you worked on three big, big time uh, viruses, correct? All right. How was it the first time around when you first started? Um, so it was, so the first, um, so I worked on, um, I, I was actually at a hospital at the time and I worked on, um, prepping us for Ebola, I believe it was 2015, uh, 2014 or 2015, um, okay. in the summer. And, um, we weren't actually, so it was one of those things where like, we were aware that there was a, a possibility that Ebola come, could come to the U S. Um, and we do know that actually two cases came, however, one of them was a nurse that was over there traveling or was over there doing a response and ended up catching and the other was a um, was actually um, somebody who lived in West Africa and then came to the US. So there were actually no transmitted cases in the United States. Um, but sort of it was it was something that was scary. But again, Ebola is my dream disease. It's my dream outbreak. Um, so for that to be the first one was sort of was sort of exciting. You know, it was like, oh, man, like this could be the time like this is really cool. Um, but it was also terrifying, right? Like it was terrifying for the beginning of my career to be like, all right, sweet. Um, you have to deal with Ebola, which is like the biggest, the baddest uh, disease we sort of know at, of at the time. So like, good luck. Um, oh, but my, um, the infection preventionists and the nurses and the medical directors I was working with at the time are incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're actually doing incredible work right now with COVID. Um, and are, are all absolute rock stars. And I actually work with them relatively regularly still um, and, and, and on phone calls with them. But, um, you know, any, any job really is, um, especially whenever you're in high stress situations like outbreak response, where it's, you know, you're, you're working around the clock, seven days a week, um, your phone is buzzing, your email's going off all hours of the night. There's not really a time to stop. Really what makes those jobs um, the best and so enjoyable is your support system. It is your coworkers. Are, it are the people that, you know, it's, it's a mm -hmm. unique situation to be able to go through outbreak response with coworkers, especially um, coworkers that you're friends with or you're close with. And, and you end up relying on each other because they're the ones that are sort of in the trenches with you and they get it and they get the exhaustion, they get the stress um, where, you know, your, your outside support system, like your family or friends um, might, might be there for you. And they typically are, but don't necessarily understand the, the immense stress or pressure that you're under. Um, especially when you're doing a response. Um, so it's it's really, really, um, and, and, and all of my jobs have had incredible support systems whenever we've done responses. So uh, they also always are, are always going to make the, the response a little bit more fun. Very nice. What does it take to become an epidemiologist? I know it's a big word, so I'm assuming it takes a lot. Not just anybody can go to a four-year school to become just that. You have to go, I'm assuming there's more schooling than that and levels of all this and that. So what all does it take? Right. So typically requires um, at least a master's of public health or an MPH um, uh, with a typical concentration in epidemiology or a, or a sub-concentration in epidemiology. Um, and that's sort of now sort of what the baseline is. Um, and um, there are also a lot of epidemiologists that are PhD level epidemiologists that have a PhD as well as an MPH. Um, and there are, you know, there are nurse epidemiologists that are go to nursing school and they get an MPH. 
medical mm-hmm. epidemiologists who are who are medical doctors um, and then get their MPH. But typically, you have to have a master of public health right now to be an epidemiologist, um, as well as you know whenever you're applying to like that first job out of your masters, um, having some experience in epidemiology, whether it be research, whether it be at a um, local, state, or federal organization, whether it be at a nonprofit organization, somewhere where you're having experience doing that, um, whether it be like an internship, whether it be like a summer project, um, or like a part-time job, like you have to have some experience now, um, in addition to having a master's degree, um, sort of in order to be an epidemiologist. Got it. So you said you work in the front lines and you, especially this, this time around, you were constantly on the clock. When did you start getting really busy and how busy did you get? So I actually, um, was my first, um, I first started working on COVID, um, I believe March 20th. Um, so I've, I've sort of started at the absolute beginning, um, sort of, and, you know, we're coming up on, um, a little over 10 months at this point. Um, but I actually initially started at test sites and I helped run test site logistics, um, and was making sure the test sites were running well. Um, and, and we were out there, you know, from, um, eight to five or eight to six, um, seven days a week. Um, and, you know, we would, we'd obviously go in ships and stuff. Um, but yeah. then come, uh, May, I actually started working with the, with the state health department, um, doing outbreak, supervising outbreak investigations, um, and sort of, sort of moving along with that, um, yeah. into specializing in hospitals and prisons. Um, and then now I coordinate the school's response, um, for, um, the local school system, um, in collaboration with the local board of health. Um, so, you know, we, and, and I was actually talking with my parents over the holidays about this. Um, and, um, the amount of time that I took over Christmas, um, I think I took off that Friday or that, that was actually my work from that. You might've heard in the background, but that, um, Thursday, that Friday, that Saturday, that Sunday, those four days were um, the only time, the only four consecutive days that I've had off um, since mm-hmm. March 20th. Um, okay. Wow. So, um, or I guess I worked a half day on that Thursday, so it was three and a half days, but that was still the longest, you know, time that I had completely been off from work. Um, and that was also just because our offices were literally closed. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's sort of, there's part of it and, you know, there's, um, you know, and there, so I'll also say there we're everybody is obviously everyone's busy, everyone's thrown off of their, you know, sort of off of the routine and, um, sort of in this is also like, you know, we also have, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, mention like the healthcare workers right now that are, that are truly, um, truly, uh, the heroes of, of this pandemic, um, and are, are truly the, you know, their support staff as well, as well as, um, the, the clinical administrative support for the hospital systems right now yeah. are absolutely incredible. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're busy, um, as well as, you know, epidemiologists and public health is also busy. Thankfully, mm-hmm. epidemiology and public health sort of runs a little less on a 24 hour clock and more on like a 16 hour a day clock normally, you know, like, okay. um, so like, you know, a typical work day for me, I'm normally up by seven, seven thirty, Um, and I'm in front of my computer before eight. Um, and I'm checking emails, uh, or responding to emails or looking up, um, people that were investigating or, or, you know, in communication with random people, um, until about 11, 1130 at night. Um, okay. and, um, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, the only time I really like 
have time to put my phone down is like if I go on a run or if I go work out, um, which is, you know, maybe an hour a day or something. Um, but mm-hmm. other than that, it's, it's, you're, you're always on, you're, you know, you're always working. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I check my work phone to see, you know, if there's any like outbreaks that we have to deal with first thing in the morning, or is there any, excuse me, are there any hospitals that we have to contact because of a suspected case or something like that? Yeah. Uh, so it's one of those things that it, it's really constant. Um, and you know, like our, our work phones stay next to our bed, um, volume mm-hmm. up. So in the middle of the night, if we get a call about an outbreak, um, that has to be handled. If we get a call about like a patient or, or someone who's in a jail or a prison that, you know, something is happening that we have to know about at that moment. Um, yeah. you know, there, there could be times where it is two o'clock, um, in the morning and you get a phone call that you have to take and you don't have an option to be like, eh, I'll send them to voicemail. Like it, it's, it's one of those things where you're always on, even if you're not. Got it. So it's been ringing emails, buzzing this and that. Okay. So you, would you say you've gotten sort of used to that then by now? Um, in a way, I think, okay. you know, I think there's a, a way to say that you get used to it, but it's also, you know, every day is still different. Um, yeah. I've yet to have two back-to-back work days that have been the exact same. Um, you know, so there is a, you know, there is a level of, you know, like I'm used to always taking my work phone and my personal phone with me everywhere I go. I'm used to, um, you know, always having my work laptop and my personal laptop together if I have to, you know, go to a, uh, a work site or to the office or if something like yeah. that happens. Um, you know, but it, it it's one of those things that like you're used to it, but it's still, you're still not really used to it, right? Like yeah. it's it's become a part of your routine, but you're not necessarily used to it. Got it. So was it difficult when you have your days off to not check your phone? Um. Sort of. It was, it was also mm-hmm. something like, you know, I, I had to be intentional about it, right? Like mm-hmm. I knew that, um, you know, these few days were, were a time for me to really sort of take a step back and, and sort of recoup a little bit and get some rest and yeah. um, sort of disconnect. Um, so, you know, I also have um, a couple of teams working under me that are, that are awesome and that um, I trust and, and are really awesome at what they do. Um, so I was able to step away um, and have them be able to continue working and doing um, the the really awesome job that they do without having to worry about, um, you know, having um, something going wrong and it not being able to be handled. Got it. Okay. So you are from Georgia, correct? Or you're currently in Georgia? Got it. Okay. So when when now that you've seen a good portion of, of, of this pandemic, would you say that your area has decreased in number of cases or has it plateaued? Um, it, it, it's, it's plateaued. Um, there, there's, okay. um, there's not really a, de- uh, a true decrease in cases. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's so in epidemiology, um, there's a number of different ways how we would describe like what a plateau looks like, what a true decrease looks like, um, what a true increase looks like. Um, and you know, we, we're currently seeing, uh, a, a plateau, um, where we also have to take into consideration, right? Like if, for example, if the holidays didn't happen and we didn't have that spike, yeah. where would we be? Right. Um, and the answer is, um, probably the exact same place we were like mid December before Christmas and new year. Right. Um, and, and we can tell that because we're seeing about the same 
numbers that we did around that time, we're seeing about that same stuff. Uh, we're seeing roughly the same increases when it comes to hospitalization, deaths, um, cases, testing numbers, all of those sort of things are, are sort of are pretty similar to where they were about a month ago. Um, a little, I guess, a little more than a month ago at this point. Oh, wow. It's been about a month. Oh, that's wild. But um, <laughs> sort of, sort of, it's, it's plateaued. And, and it, the reality yeah. is, is it's not going away yet. Um, it's it's going to be plateaued. I, I will be really impressed, um, especially in the state of Georgia, um, where our governor hasn't had a lot of really, um, hasn't necessarily listened to the science as much as other governors and other states have. And those states um, were able to open up quicker and have had lower numbers than Georgia has, has had lower deaths, has had lower cases, has had lower hospitalizations um, because their governors listen to scientists and listen to um, the data and the experts instead of making decisions based on um, essentially what is what is um, popular within their party. Um, and, you know, so as long as the government's um, especially when it comes to states, um, aren't listening to science, aren't listening to the, the experts or the data, um, we're going to see an increase in cases. And that's just sort of what the reality of it is. Um, and we won't really see a, a large decrease until um, sort of the experts are, are listened to. And I think with the new administration on the federal level, that's that's starting to become uh, something that um, is being valued again, which isn't something that I thought I would ever have to say. Um, but, um, you know, I, I am incredibly optimistic. Um, you know, I think especially the vaccinations coming out and, and hopefully an increase in vaccinations um, that we will see a decrease. But currently, um, especially in Georgia, there, there's a pretty, a pretty big plateau. And I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if we see an increase um, in the next couple of months. Interesting. Good to know. So with, with everything going on, what have, what have been a few things that you've learned from all of this since the time you started till now? Um, so I, I think the, the first and the biggest one is sort of uh, the importance of self-care um, and whether that looks like, you know, just taking a little bit of time and going on a run, going on a walk during your lunch break, um, calling or texting like one of your friends and just, you know, talking with them and, and catching up um, or like, you know, taking like a long bath or doing a face mask or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the true importance of self-care, I think, is something that um, – that I at least is, is probably one of my biggest takeaways from this. You know, it's, um, I, I remember being told um, you can't expect to take care of others if you can't take care of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And True. that's something that really, really has rung, rung pretty loudly during this. Um, I, I think another one is, um, you know, it is, um, Another thing that sort of has been learned is, is the true inequity we have in, in America. Um, and whether that be racial inequity, um, social inequity, uh, when it comes to uh, inequities related to gender identity or sexual identity, um, inequities in education. I mean, um, thinking about, for example, like um, whenever um, schools had to, like, you know, public schools, K-12 schools had to go virtual um, in the spring, the amount of students that didn't have access to internet, um, which is something that like everyone's like, oh yeah, like you just go home, connect to Wi-Fi, whatever. That's not the reality for a lot of Americans. Um, and you know, there are, there are school systems that were spending millions of dollars getting hotspots to to students and to families in their districts um, because they didn't have access, or they had one computer at home for six or seven children. Um, and you know, it's it's 
the inequities uh, in, in America has really shown throughout this pandemic and we're still seeing it, right? Like we're still seeing um, communities of color that are um, dying at three, four times the rate of, um, of white Americans. Um, we're seeing hospitalizations that um, in some areas are, are six to eight times that um, of white Americans and communities of color. Um, and we're seeing, you know, places like um, the Native American and Alaska Indian um, or the American Indian Alaska Native communities um, that weren't getting the federal assistance that, that they were promised. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all seeing these inequities that, that have always been there, that have always um, been incredibly, um, incredibly um, apparent, um, but we were always able to sort of sweep them under the rug. And I think COVID-19 has really shown us the importance of fighting for um, health equity, fighting for educational equity, for economic equity, um, when, whenever it comes to um, communities that have been systemically marginalized. And I think those are sort of what really I think where a lot of people are taken away from COVID-19. With your experience, what advice would you give to somebody who is wanting to become an epidemiologist? Say after all of this has, has, has transpired, you know, there's, there's new people in school that say, hey, I want to learn, I want to be part of the solution. What would you tell them? Uh, well, first of all, it's the coolest job that there is. Um, and, you know, epidemiology is really, I could go on forever talking about it. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, is sort of, um, is to, to make sure you sort of find your niche um, and okay. what, you're, what, you're, what you're passionate about. Um, I know plenty of incredible epidemiologists that never want to touch infectious disease epidemiology in their life. Um, like they focus specifically on um, pharmaceutical epidemiology or cancer epidemiology, or um, I have a colleague who does um, most of their work around asthma and COPD and lung um, disorder epidemiology. Um, you know, so there are so many, so many different pieces and, and different types of epidemiology um, to really find sort of what part of epidemiology, epidemiology you love um, and start focusing on there. And also, um, one of the, the biggest um, pieces of, of um, advice I can give is for really anybody that wants to work in public health is to get experience on the local level. Work at your local health department, um, whether it be a board of health, whether it be a health department, um, whether it be um, whatever sort of sanctioned um, governmental entity that you have um, in, in your area. Um, because that's how you learn about the community. That's how you learn about what health looks like in different communities, how different communities that you're like, oh, I grew up here. I know what this community looks like. I know what health problems or, or health disparities mm-hmm. are. Um, but you really don't, right? Because like we all have sort of this jaded lens that we look through, um, especially yeah. whenever it comes to like where we grew up. Um, you know, but the, the biggest thing I will always advocate for is getting experience at the community health um, because that's where a you'll see any and everything possible to come through that door, um, and and you'll you'll be challenged. And a lot of things, um, especially at community health departments and local health departments, are are really incredibly under resourced and are understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to learn how to be resourceful. You have to learn sort of how to deal with any and everything that can be thrown at you. Um, but I think that that's really 
one of the biggest pieces of advice I would give other than like finding what you truly love about epidemiology and working at your local health department um, are, are great places to jump off. Um, I think too, another thing that, especially if you want to be an epidemiologist is you do have to make the decision of, do I want to stick with it enough to also get a master's degree? Um, because a master's, uh, a MPH, um, with, especially the concentration in epidemiology is really challenging. Um, and you really have to like statistics. You really have to like being challenged. Um, you know, any, any graduate degree is going to be challenging. Um, because that's part of why graduate degrees are graduate degrees. But, you know, that's another thing is like, there are, there are so many incredible people that want to be epidemiologists that want to work at health departments, but might not want to get a master's degree. And that's fine because that's not having a master's degree. It also isn't a requirement to work in public health. Right. So there are things like community health workers or resource coordinators or communicable mm -hmm. disease um, specialists or um, investigators or, you know, there's so many other options in, in public health that don't require at least a master's degree um, that are, are really, really cool jobs um, and are really getting into the nitty gritty of what public health is. Um, but specifically, if you want to be an epidemiologist, you have to know that you want it enough to stick through that master of public health problem. Because I know there were a couple of times during my program where I was like, man, do I really want this? Like I am in it. <laughs> 11.30 at night, and it's taking me seven hours to do, like, one homework problem, and I have six more to go. Like, is this worth it? And the answer is yes. Um, but, you know, you have to be willing to put in that work, um, especially if you're going for a master's degree. And then, obviously, if you want to get a doctoral degree, there's uh, there's more challenges, um, and, you know, it, it's more difficult. But um, you, you just really have to love it. You have to, to really want to make sure that people can live happier, healthier, and longer lives. Last question. This is this is a non-related question to the to the topic, but this is a good one. If you were to go back ten years, what advice would you tell yourself, and would you listen to yourself? Oh man, um, huh? I would probably tell myself to just go for it. Um, okay. You know, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of times whenever we're sort of planning or thinking about what we want to do in the future, we get, uh, we get sort of scared about it or, or we get, um, you know, we have a lot of imposter syndrome and that never goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Like it, imposter syndrome is, is there a lot, um, oh, yeah. you know, and, um, but you know, you, you can't let that stop you. And if, you know, I think, um, 11 years ago, I would have been, um, or 10 years ago would have been 2011. So I'd have been like 10th or 11th grade. So I've been finishing up high school, figuring out where I wanted to go to college. Um, you know, and, and I think I just would have told myself, just like, just go for it. Like, you know, when you're gut, what you want to do, um, just go for it. And like, it's going to suck sometimes, but like, you're going to love what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what I would, what I would ultimately have told myself. And I like to think I would listen to myself. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, when I was in 10th or 11th grade, I didn't really like listening to anybody, um, myself included, probably. Um, but I at least like to think that it's good enough advice that at that time I probably probably would have listened to it. <laughs> I, I think I would be on the same boat. I, I, I would hear, I would listen to myself, but I wouldn't take the advice. I would just listen to myself to entertain myself and go, yeah, 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 and then walk away and do the opposite. So it, it, it makes sense. Well, uh, so I have a work Twitter. So the work Twitter is Fairman, F-A-I-R-M-A-N-R-T. 
Um, and then you can follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, all of that fun stuff. Perfect. Thanks again, Rob, for stopping by. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. We'll be back next week for another exciting episode. <laughs>